Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get into our sermon time. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for all that you do for us. Lord, I thank you for this church and the opportunity that you've given me to uh, shepherd your church under your leadership. Lord, I pray that you will continue to um, give me wisdom. I pray that you'll continue to give us wisdom to follow your leadership. Lord, I pray as we dig into your word that you will show us how we are um, not like you so that we can become more like you. God, convict us, convict us of our sin so that we can confess it and turn it over to you and repent from it. Lord, I pray that you will help us to stay on mission for you, whatever we're doing and wherever we're at. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, um, well, if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. This morning we're going to be in uh, chapter 10, and the title of this sermon is um, uh, A Binding Agreement. And the main idea here is that morning sin leads to repentance. Morning sin leads to repentance. Um, so far in this series, so we're, this series we're going through all of the uh, post-exilic texts. Um, there are six books there in the post-exilic text. There's Ezra, Haggai, Esther, Zechariah, Nehemiah, and Malachi. Um, we're almost done with Nehemiah. And then our Christmas series, we're going to take a look at Malachi and how the post-exilic Jewish community was still left wanting. They were still left desiring something more and how Jesus is the answer to that. And Jesus is also the answer to our problems when we find that no matter what we do and how hard we try, we're still left wanting. We're still left needing something more. And Jesus is the answer to that. Um, but throughout all of these books, what the Jews learn is that everything they do, they must do in faith and dependence on God. So the main idea of the series is depending on God. Now, Nehemiah builds on that theme and shows that believers must depend on God, especially when times get tough. So again, uh, this morning we're in chapter 10, and the main idea of this chapter is morning sin leads to repentance. And we have this kind of broken down into three groups or three uh, sub, uh, kind of sub-chapters here, and we could call that agreeing to vow or agreeing to a vow, and then vowing holiness, and then vowing mission. So let me review just the book of Nehemiah so far. I can't review the whole series. Um, if you want the, the whole series, you have to go back into our podcast. We've got the whole series there. Um, but after 150 years, the Israelites have finally rebuilt the temple. They've finished the wall. And then starting last week, they got back to studying and applying God's word. Well, not last week. I wasn't here last week. Two weeks ago, they got back to studying and applying God's word. Now, Ezra led the priests in teaching the Torah, that was the books of Moses, to the Jews. And then they found that they were actually just in time to celebrate the Festival of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. Then after those festivals, uh, we studied when the Jews mourned their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They offered a prayer to God that focused on God's faithfulness uh, in contrast to Israel's faithlessness. And they were taking responsibility for their discipline. They were saying that they were in a bad situation, but they're in that bad situation because God is disciplining them for their actions. So they recognized that uh, it was their responsibility that they were in that bad spot. So the timeline of events, what happens in today's sermon is immediately following that prayer that the Jews offered, right? Not, not the next day, not the next week or two months later, but immediately. As soon as that prayer is over, this, uh, the text that picks up here is where that starts. Um, and kind of a little side note, um, I say we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning, um, but we're actually going to start in chapter 9, verse 38, 
Um, and that's because when we look at that, um, that verse, it really looks like it should be with verse 10 and not with verse 9. In saying that, I know a lot of people are going, oh, you can't change the word of God. Yes, you're correct. I cannot change the word of God. But these, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were not placed there in the original texts. The chapter and verse numbers are placed uh, by a monk who lived hundreds of years later after the canon was um, kind of set in place and after the church recognized this is the word of God and people are sitting there studying it and the monk finally said, well, you know what would really help is if we could all kind of have some numbers that we could reference to to help each other know where we're talking about and what we're talking about. So he went through and added all these chapter and verse numbers and that's where we get those from. The word of God is holy and unchangeable. It is inerrant. But these verse numbers and the chapter numbers, uh, most of the time they're really good. But I think there are some times that we can look at that and say, yeah, maybe he got that one in the wrong spot. So that's what I'm saying about uh, chapter 9, verse 38. That really should be with verse 10. So we're going to go ahead and get started with that. Uh, in view of all this, remember that all this was that prayer that they just gave. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests, those whose seals were on the document were, now, on that list, there's a big old list right there. It's Nehemiah the governor. There are 22 priests and at least 19 Levites and 44 other people that are described as heads of the people. I'm not going to go through and read that entire list, um, but now I will say, um, I say at least 19 Levites because verse 10 says, and their brothers. So that suggests that there are at least two people in that. So I counted that as two, and I'm saying at least because it could be more. So there are 17 names plus the and their brothers would give us at least 19. In total, this list contains 86 people. Those 86 plus people each signed this document agreeing to the contents. So kind of like we think of um, the Declaration of Independence, and then it's got the signatures at the bottom. It's kind of like that. But there are 86, at least 86 names on this document. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse, chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the Levites, priests, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who, was, who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our Lord. So we've seen, uh, what we see in verse 28 is that it's not just those 86, uh, at least 86 names that are on that document. It's not just those people that are agreeing to this. It's every Jew who's living there in Jerusalem, who, has, who is of age to understand what they're agreeing to. They're all agreeing to this. The community leaders signed the agreement, but the entire assembly is giving a verbal agreement. They're swearing an oath. Now, typically, churches and church tradition kind of frowns upon swearing oaths. But in this case, I think their heart's in the right place. Notice what they're swearing an oath to. It says they're swearing an oath to follow the law of God. Now, they're referring specifically to the Mosaic Covenant. Right? This is the covenant that God made with Israel after bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. God gave this covenant through Moses, and uh, we can read about the details of this Mosaic Covenant in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Also, it's important to remember the last sermon, which covered chapter 9. If you remember in that sermon, the Jews were confessing their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They named specific ways in which the Israelites failed to uphold the Mosaic Covenant. and named specific ways that the Jews were unfaithful to God. It seems as though they were ready to do more than confess. They wanted to turn away from those sins and turn back to God and follow his command. 
Now we have a word for that. What's that called? Repentance. Very good. That's to repent. That's to turn away from your sins and turn towards God. You cannot turn away from your sins without turning towards God. You cannot turn towards God without turning away from your sins. They're in opposite directions, right? If my, I've used this example several times. If my sin is over here and God is over here, I cannot be heading towards sin and towards God at the same time. Or if I'm heading towards God, I cannot also be heading towards sin, right? So if I'm heading towards sin, to repent would be to literally turn around and head towards God. And that's what the Jews are saying they want to do now. They've seen in their past that they are heading towards sin, and they have this habit of turning towards sin. And they're saying, we're taking a vow now to turn away from that sin and turn back towards God and follow the law that he gave us through Moses. All right. Now, if we keep reading, we will see that they are very specific in some ways that they are taking this vow. All right. So we're going to start and uh, we're going to continue in verse 30. So the vow starts by describing how the Jews will maintain their holiness. Now, if you recall, at the end of Ezra, we learned that holiness is important and worthy of protection. So picking up there in verse 30, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. I'm going to pause right there. Exodus 34, 16 forbids the Israelites from marrying the daughters of pagan lands because those, uh, they will cause the Israelites to turn away from God. Those temptations, um, having those pagan daughters in their lands, and the, they will kind of bring the religion of their fathers with them, and it will tempt the Jews to turn away from God. Throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites fail at this, which did indeed lead them to, fa- to failing at uh, God's law. They turned away from God's law. And again, most recently, at the end of Ezra, we saw that the post-exilic Jews had married with neighboring cultures. And so, at the end of Ezra 10, they sent those wives away and are now vowing to prevent that from happening again. We're going to continue in verse 31. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. So here... The Jews are vowing to uphold the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year, to rest on the seventh day, and to allow the land to rest on the seventh year. This is one of the Ten Commandments. So what we see here is that they're committing to both the holiness of their marriages and the holiness of their time. The Jews were submitting to God's wisdom, to marry within their own religion, and to follow God's wisdom in allowing them to rest, allowing the land to rest. Now, in our minds, we think that To be most productive, we should just work all the time. That's how we're going to be most productive. But God said, no, that's not how this works. It goes against common sense. But in order to be most productive, you actually need to take a little bit of rest. We shouldn't be working seven days and seven days and seven days, week after week after week, but take a rest. And in that rest, we focus on our time with God and allow God to recreate us, to make us more like him. And then we can be more productive in those six days than we could be if we worked seven days. They knew that if God had told them to abstain from something, it was because it was harmful for them. See, for us, it's easy for us to let these little sins continue to fester. We give in to temptation just a little here or just a little there. But in the end, we're breaking our holiness. This negatively affects our walk with God, us as individuals and us as a church. It's one of the hardest things for us to grasp is that when I am sinning, it's hurting my church. When I am sinning, it's not only hurting my walk with God, but it's hurting Ms. Brenda's walk with God. Or if I'm sinning, it's not just hurting my relationship with God, but it's hurting John's walk with God. 
Each and every one of us have a responsibility to each other to focus on our holiness, to protect the holiness of this church. As we're getting near the end of this series, right, at the end of the year, we'll take a few moments to analyze our life and consider where we might have given in to sin and allowed it to taint our holiness. So let us, like the Jews here, vow to cut that from our lives so that we can once again protect the holiness of this church body and our personal walk with God. Moving into verse 32, all right, verse 32 through the end of the chapter outline the details of the vow and how they will provide for the temple and for the priests. So that first part, they were vowing to holiness, and now they're vowing to provide for the temple and for the priests. Uh, Verse 32, uh, we will impose the following commands on ourselves to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the temple of our God. All right, I'm going to pause again. The amount, this amount that's listed here is actually less than what is commanded in the Mosaic Covenant. That's Exodus. Uh, It was commanded in Exodus for the temple tax. Um, The amount that we read here is um, about a third of a shekel, whereas the temple tax was supposed to be a half of a shekel. It's a little bit um, unclear as to what this was or what the purpose was. Was this a third in addition to the half, which would then total five-sixths of a shekel? Or was this a third um, instead of the half? They were cutting this down a little bit because the people returning to Jerusalem in this post-exilic time, uh, there was a lot of poverty in Jerusalem. And so they were saying, we can't quite afford that half, but we still want to be faithful in our giving, so we'll give just a little bit less. It's a little bit unclear for us there, but we do see that they are making this important. They're, they're setting this aside, even though they're uh, in extreme poverty in this time. They're still making, it, uh, making a point, and they're vowing to it because it is important. All right, and then we continue, verse 33. They continue to impose on themselves to give um, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and the new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel, and uh, for the work of the house of God. So they're agreeing to supply the materials to operate the temple for worship as outlined in the Mosaic Covenant. Continuing verse 34. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. Now, in earlier times, the Gibeonites were responsible for supplying the wood, um, but now it seems like the whole community is sharing that responsibility. This fire that burned at the temple, um, according to Leviticus 6.12, this fire was never to go out. It was supposed to be continually burning. This means that they needed to have a constant supply of wood. This is not an easy task for them. They had to constantly supply this wood. So that might be why they've um, said it's not just the Gibeonites, but we're all going to take some responsibility of that. Continuing in verse 35, we will bring the first fruits of our land and of every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law and will bring our firstborn, firstborn, bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. So here they're rededicating themselves to sacrificing to God the first and best of their harvest and their livestock and their sons. They're vowing to sacrifice their sons. To, well, let's see. This one sounds a little bit off because we see several times throughout the Old Testament that God condemns the pagan nations for sacrificing their children to their lower G, lowercase g gods. And God, the real God, does not condone the sacrifice of children for worship. So what are the Jews talking about here? Why are they vowing to sacrifice their, their children to God? 
Well, that goes back to Numbers chapter 18, verses 14 through 16. It says, Everything in Israel that is permanently dedicated to the Lord belongs to you. The firstborn of every living thing, human or animal, presented to the Lord belongs to you. But you must certainly redeem a human firstborn and redeem the firstborn of an unclean animal. You will pay the redemption price for a month-old male according to your assessment, five shekels of silver by the standard sanctuary shekel, which is 25 geras. So what this is saying right, is that the firstborn of every living thing is presented to God as an offering, but some of it must be bought back. Right? The parents of the, the children, right? so the firstborn child would be given to the temple, and then the parents were required to redeem their children, to buy them back from their temple. They would redeem them by paying some money to the temple. This was not just some symbolic act, though. It was a financial sacrifice that the parents had to pay. And if they did not have enough money to pay for the redemption, then the child would become a temple servant. They would become a a servant of the temple. They were bringing their child to God as a sacrifice, then buying their child back so that they would not be sacrificed. Now, this idea of redemption, it's an important thing that carries throughout the Bible. Most importantly, though, this is the language that's used for our salvation. See, we're destined for death and eternal damnation because of our sin. Not only that, we are enslaved to sin and we cannot do anything about it. We can't do anything to fix it. But Jesus came and he lived a perfect, sinless life. Then he died on the cross for our salvation. He was raised on the third day in victory over sin and death. But his sacrifice is the payment for our redemption. His sacrifice on the cross is the payment for our redemption. Through faith in him, we can be freed from our slavery to sin and eternity in hell. Now these parents... In the Old Testament, who are sacrificing their children to the temple and then redeeming them back, this is all just foreshadowing for Jesus redeeming us from our slavery to sin. It's foreshadowing for Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross to pay for our freedom from sin. It's foreshadowing of God sacrificing his son to buy our freedom from eternal damnation. This redemption language carries throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. And it's important for us to notice that because it always points to Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And we'll continue reading in verse 37. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings of every fruit tree and of the new wine and fresh oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites. For the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. A priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth. And the Levites are to take a tenth from this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. So the precedent for what the Jews are committing in these verses is outlined in Numbers 18, 12 to 13, and Leviticus 26, 1 through 10. Right, those commands provide support for the Levites. Since the Levites were the priestly tribe in Israel... Um, They didn't get an inheritance like the other tribes. Also, since they were dedicated to temple service, they would not have the same access to earning an income or harvesting crops like the other tribes did. So the other tribes had the task of supporting the Levites. Continuing in verse 39. For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and fresh oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, this final statement, it's more than just a summary of their vows to provide for the temple. For the temple, But it's an answer 
to a problem that has plagued the Jews ever since Jeshua and Zerubbabel brought back the first wave of returnees. All the way back in January, when we first started this sermon series, we saw Jeshua and Zerubbabel bring back that first wave of Jews back to Jerusalem after the exile. And throughout this entire process, this whole year, what we've seen time and time again is that the Jews continually fail in one area. And now they're vowing to not let that happen again. They're vowing that they will focus on the house of God. They will focus on their mission from God. The message from, uh, sorry, all the way back um, in January through the month of February, we looked at the prophets um, Haggai and Zechariah. And the message from these two prophets was clear. The Jews had neglected the temple, and therefore, they were disobedient to God's command to rebuild Jerusalem. Due to this disobedience, God was disciplining them, and their work yielded no profit, their farming yielded no produce, their rain didn't fall, and no matter what they did, they could not win. Well, because they were not depending on God and being faithful and obedient to Him. Due to that disobedience, God was disciplining them. So God said that this was because they had failed to prioritize His mission for them. This has been an ongoing problem for them. Every time they would finish a task, they would, uh, it was almost like they didn't know what the next step to take. Right? They finished the altar, and they were like, um, I don't know what to do next, so we're just going to go off and do something else. Well, so God called them back and said, no, now you need to finish the temple. So they finished the foundation of the temple, and they were like, mm, that's good. We're going to go focus on something else now. God said, no, you need to come back and finish the temple. So they finished the temple, and the Jews said, eh, all right, that's done. Now we can go do whatever we want. God said, no, I called you back here to rebuild this city to worship me. Not just rebuild the temple, not just rebuild your houses, but rebuild the city so that you can be my people and worship me and show my glory to the nations around you. So after they finished the temple, they kind of lost their way again, and God called them back through Nehemiah and said, no, come back and rebuild the wall. Well, before that, with um, Ezra, right? Ezra called them back and said, no, we need to rebuild our holiness here. And then they rebuilt the wall. So this whole time, every step along the way, it's like they would take one step forward and two steps back. But now the Jews are saying, we will not neglect the house of God. They're vowing not to let that happen again. Now, for us, it's easy for us to, uh, to get distracted from the mission that God has for us. And let's face it, 2020 has been a doozy. We may have gotten caught up in the election drama, or you might be waiting for the coronavirus pandemic to be over. And apparently murder hornets have made a comeback. But whatever it is, whatever there is out there, our mission does not change. We were created to worship and glorify God. I'm going to say that again. We were created to worship and glorify God. I said this a couple weeks ago. People talk about the, 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 the greatest question, the hardest question to answer. What is the meaning of life? Well, that's simple. The meaning of life worship and glorify God. Now, we do that through obedience. Jesus commissioned us to make disciples of all nations. So when we are obedient to that commission, we are worshiping and glorifying God. We, took, we put those two together at victory to, uh, into our vision. So our, our vision at victory is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How we do that, the way that we do that might be different from year to year, or it might be different from house to house, it might be different day to day, or it might be different depending on your own personal situation. How we do that might be different, but what we do is the same. We worship God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jews were supposed to be rebuilding the temple, rebuilding their, simple, their city, and rebuilding their faith. We are to be making disciples. 
The Jews got distracted after each step and had to be constantly reminded. They committed to staying focused on their job. Let's commit to staying focused on ours. So let's get to our application. Our application always comes from our definition of a disciple, which we get from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And from that, we get our three indicators of a disciple, and that's knowing, being, and doing. The knowing is where Jesus says, follow me. So the disciple has um, committed to know Jesus and to know his word and to know his will and to follow his will. The being is where we are constantly being transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's where Jesus says, I will make you. Right? We are constantly being remade by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then the doing is where the, the disciple is doing the will of Jesus, doing the work of Jesus. And this is where Jesus says that we will be fishing for people. Right? So our application always comes from those three points, knowing, being, and doing. So the no is to know that we're going we're gonna to fail again. Now, I can't, I, I can't know for sure, but it definitely seems as though the Jews in this chapter, they're sincere in their vow. They really do mean what they're saying. They, they, they mean it, and they're taking it to heart, and they're going to do everything they can not to fail again. Spoiler alert, they fail again. We're going to read in the next couple chapters that they fail at almost every single one of these vows that they made. They fail. Uh, spoiler alert, no matter how many times you vow to give up your sin, you're going to sin again. This doesn't mean that we should quit, though. We should be growing in our sanctification, meaning that these failures should be less frequent and less severe, less frequent than they used to. But no matter how hard we try, we're going to fail again. That's the knowing part. And that sounds kind of depressing. But the B, the B is the, the answer to that. That's to be saved by Jesus. Know that you're going to fail again, but be saved by Jesus. Since we fail again, like the Jews did, we must turn to Jesus. Because of our failures and our continual failures, we can never earn our righteousness. We can never earn our place in heaven. We broke our relationship with God, and we are incapable of fixing it. But Jesus has already made a way for us. His sacrifice on the cross means that even though I fail, if I place my faith in him, my relationship with God is reconciled, and I have been redeemed. I have been purchased out of that slavery to sin. I've been purchased out of my destiny in hell. He paid for my righteousness, and he paid for my holiness, and he has reconciled my relationship with the Father but only if I believe in him. And then the doing part, the doing application, is to stay focused on the mission. We were created to do one thing, and that's to worship God. We do that through living an obedient life and loving others. One of the most loving things that we can do is to share the gospel with others. If they're lost, we introduce them to Jesus by sharing the gospel. That's one of the most loving things that we can do. If they are other Christians, if, especially if they are church members with us, if they're saved, we let them see how the gospel is positively impacting their life or areas where they still need to surrender to the gospel. Through helping others to know the gospel, we are making disciples. That is being obedient to the, oh, obedient. That is being obedient to the great commission. That's how we worship God by staying focused on the mission. No matter what else changes, no matter what other hurdles come our way, no matter what other situations change, our mission is to make disciples. How we do that might change. Looking into next year, we don't know what next year is going to look like. But we do know our mission is going to be making disciples. How we do that changes, but what we do stays the same. This is why our vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you for the truth that is in your word, and I thank you that your word shows us where we fail. But most importantly, I thank you that your word shows us how we can be reconciled with you, that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins so that we can be saved from our destiny in hell. We can be redeemed from our slavery to sin. So no matter how many times we fail, God, I pray that you will help us to find our faith in you, that you will help us to turn towards you and to grow in our sanctification. I pray, God, that you will help us to be more like you each and every, each and every day and help us to stay focused on our mission from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response, and you can respond right where you're seated, or you can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBC Hope Mills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.